That's a much better high five. Take two. Welcome back, everyone. This is Panastoria. I'm Jonah. I'm Lindsay. Welcome back, and welcome to our new listeners. Yeah. Thanks okay. for checking out season two. Yeah, for sure. Embark on this journey. Should be interesting. <laughs> part, part two of our journey through yeah. history. Today, we're going to be talking about the Crimean War, which was not the war that is technically happening right now in Ukraine, but you're about to find out that Crimea has long been a contentious place on the earth, especially in that, well, especially in Europe, between the Ukraine and Russia. So, yeah, anyway, introductions out of the way. I think we can just get right into it. I was gonna say, it. I mean, yeah, at this point, like, we may as well just start talking, because there's really nothing people know about the Crimean War Pretty anyway. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> so, just a bit of uh, background. The Crimean Peninsula is located in southern Ukraine, or it's a part of Russia. That whole thing is really controversial obviously and technically it's in ukraine yes it is connect anyway um it is in the south it is long been contentious between russia and ukraine it historically has ties to the russian empire and yeah where we need to start is in the ottoman empire and the reason why is because the ottoman empire was huge it had lands all in the Balkans, including most of Greece, up towards the Austrian border. And it also held land pretty close around the Black Sea towards Crimea. And it also held a lot of land in the Arabian Peninsula, places like Palestine and the coast of Arabia, and even into Egypt. By 1850, the Ottoman Empire was dying. It was known as the Sick Man of Europe, which was first coined by John Russell in 1853. And the reason why it was called the Sick Man of Europe is because, well, it was dying. A lot of internal turmoil between the different nationalities climbing for their independence was rising. They also had quite a few wars between Russia within the 1700s and the 1800s. And their first point of when they began to decline is they had a war with Austria and they lost the Battle of Vienna in 1683. This resulted in the Treaty of Karlowitz in 1699, where the Ottomans were forced to cede much of their territories in Central Europe. And the Ottomans ceased to be a threat in Europe and Austria emerged as the dominant power in the region. As I said before, the Ottomans were corroding from within because of nationalist sentiments. For example, there are Serbian revolts in 1804, and they lasted until 1817. The initial uprisings were suppressed in 1813, but a second uprising in 1815 was more successful, leading, leading to the autonomous principality of Serbia. Greek nationalists also revolted in 1821. They were supported by Russia, Britain, France, and Haiti, of all places. The Ottomans were unable to crush the rebellion, leading to an independent Greek Republic and another war with Russia. There was a term coined at that time called the Eastern Question, and it was what the European powers called the uncertainty of the future of the balance of power within Europe should the Ottoman Empire collapse. The Concert of Europe, which was established at the Vienna Conference following the Napoleonic War, was seen to be in complete jeopardy 
of collapsing should the Ottoman Empire collapse. Another threat was the Russian wish to expand, which Lindsay's going to touch on. Yeah. So the Russian Empire at this point was uh, kind of like coming out of the, the Napoleonic Wars. So for those who don't really know, Napoleon tried to invade Russia. And like everyone else who tries to invade Russia, it doesn't usually go very well. And this time it also didn't go very well. And the Russians chased Napoleon out with the help of cold weather. And... Uh, <laughs> and classic entrapment and so they were yeah they were recovering from this but they also started to gain some power uh after the napoleonic wars and stuff and nicholas the first was czar at this time and the russians kind of saw themselves as acting as the police of europe maintaining the balance of power that had been established in the treaty of vienna so basically the balance of power is between the holy alliance which is russia prussia and austria hungary and then I guess for the sake of this, we'll call them the Allies, which were the Ottoman Empire and Britain and France, etc. And so the, the Russians felt that the Ottomans and the British were taking over a lot of land, and Russia was like, well, we want stuff too. <laughs> so starting as early as, Pe as Peter the Great, uh, Russia had been expanding southward toward the Black Sea for a long time, for a couple obvious reasons. At this time, and when Peter the Great became... Czar, Russia was pretty landlocked. The only ports they had were on the White Sea, which really aren't that useful in the winter. And so Peter the Great took the land that St. Petersburg sits on, and so they got a Baltic port, which is more useful, but again, in the winter, still kind of not great. Still gets cold, and icebreakers really weren't a thing at the time. So Peter the Great wanted to have a full-on navy, and so they started going south towards the Black Sea. They wanted a, a year-round navy and a, a year-round trade. So the other biggest reason for needing a better port is trade to Russia was really difficult and bas basically limited to six months of the year. So getting the Black Sea port was a really big deal. Yeah. When Russia defeated the Ukrainian Cossacks, Crimean Tatars, and Circassians, they gained control of the territory, essentially, and in the Crimea in the south and basically erased any buffer zone that existed between Russia and the Ottoman Empire and put them in direct conflict. The conflict with the Ottomans also presented a really interesting religious issue of importance. Moscow saw itself as kind of the next Constantinople, but the Russians saw themselves ultimately as the protector of Orthodox Christians, and many of those Orthodox Christians lived in the Ottoman Empire. So as Jonah had said, the Ottoman Empire encompassed a lot of the Balkan regions, and so Serbia, Croatia... Bulgaria, those countries, all are historically Orthodox Christians, and they were living amongst the Orthodox, or sorry, amongst the uh, Ottoman Empire, and they were treated like second-class citizens because they didn't really, you know, fit the religion. So the Russians saw themselves as the protector of these people, as the home of the Orthodox Church, essentially, and, and the Tsar representing, you know, the leader of that, well, the patriarch is the leader of the church, but, you know, connections to the Tsar because they were the, um, you know, um, ah, I'm not sure. the, they were, um, oh God, appointed by God. Um, oh, there you go. divine right. There we go. <laughs> like there's a term I'm forgetting. <laughs> um, God, uh, between that and baklava, I don't know. Um, it's good to be back at Panasoria, everyone. Yeah. Uh, so Britain's, imme <laughs> Britain's immediate fear, obviously, was that, uh, Russian expansionism, at the expense of the Ottoman Empire was a problem for the British because 
well, first of all, the Ottomans were their allies, so obviously that's a problem. But two, Britain was pretty worried that Russia would make advances towards India or towards Scandinavia and Western Europe. So the idea is that if they get close to the Ottoman Empire and they start attacking the Ottoman Empire, then they're essentially just like forging their way, th- their way south towards India, which was not something Britain was going to give up. And uh, the Royal Navy also wanted to forestall the threat of a powerful Russian Navy. The British have always had one of the most powerful navies in the world, and they really didn't want to be challenged by anybody else. There was obviously some challengers. The French and the Dutch traditionally had good navies as well, but not nearly to the scale of the British Navy, and especially at this point in time, they controlled the seas. And so having another large empire with a large year-round navy isn't something the British were wild about. (laughs) Quote, uh, the Crimean War was fought for the sake of Europe rather than for the Eastern question. It fought against Russia, not in favor of Turkey. The British fought Russia out of resentment and supposed that her defeat would strengthen the European balance of power. End quote. Um, For some reason, I don't know why I didn't write down who said that. Um, I really suck at this, apparently. But um, anyway, the the point that's trying to be made here is that the British didn't care very much about the Ottomans. They just cared about where the Ottoman Empire was, and that mattered to them. They were like, I don't really care about you, but I care about you surviving only insofar as you protect my space. So it was a problem that the Russians were getting close. Russian history professor Mikhail Pagodin He was an advisor to Nicholas I. Sensed that Russia's role as a protector of the Orthodox had not been recognized or understood and that Russia was unfairly treated by the West. So they thought that all of these reactions to their expansionism were kind of stupid. They're like, well, why why can't we? He said, quote, France takes Algeria from Turkey and almost every year England annexes another Indian principality. None of this disturbs the balance of power. But when Russia occupies Moldova, albeit temporarily, That disturbs the balance of power. We can expect nothing from the West but blind hatred and malice. And this was actually a a note that he had written in a memorandum to Tsar Nicholas I, um, who tended to agree. But it's also often said that, and it's important to note this, um, Russia's military was pretty weak, and as a country they were technologically pretty backward and administratively incompetent, so Nicholas I wasn't super great at managing things. There had been a series of czars after Peter that weren't awesome, and Nicholas I was a pretty good example of that. So even as much as the Russians thought themselves the protectors of the, the Orthodox and they wanted to, to maintain that role, they realistically didn't have the means to do so. But they were expanding south anyways, uh, and that was a problem for the British. So Yeah, and another... Another issue that was popping up in Europe is that France was back, trying to come back again. Napoleon III was France's newly proclaimed emperor, and he was also the nephew of one Napoleon Bonaparte, which I'm sure is a very scandalous name in Europe, especially at that time. (laughs) And he dreamed of returning France to its former glory. So his plan involved regaining French favor with the Catholic Church, especially within the aftermath of both Napoleonic Wars and the French Revolutionary Wars. The Catholic Church lost a lot of power within France. They used to have a lot of say in what went on, especially with the clergy, but with the basically getting rid of the clergy as a social tier within France, it didn't have a lot of say within the French government. So Napoleon didn't want to give it back to them necessarily, but they wanted to get back into good favors with the Catholic Church. 
and he attempted to have France declared as the protector of Christians and Christian shrines in the Holy Land. Of course, Russia disputed this attempt to have the protective, their protective authority taken away at the risk of Orthodox Christians. The Ottomans agreed with Russia and withdrew its support for France and declared Russia the protector of Orthodox Christians in the Ottoman Empire. In response, Napoleon III sent ships of the line, Charlemagne and several other following ships to the Black Sea, which is in violation of the London Straits Convention, which barred warships in the Black Sea apart from those of Russian and Ottoman origin. France also paid Sultan, I'm going to mispronounce this, Abdul Masid, a substantial amount of money to ratify a new treaty to grant France and the Roman Catholic Church supreme authority over Catholic holy sites previously held by the Greek Orthodox Church, including the Church of Nativity in Bethlehem. So that's a big fucking deal, especially at a big blow to the Russians. So in response, Tsar Nicholas I deployed the 4th and 5th armies to the Danube River in Wallachia, which is modern-day Romania, as a show of force, threatening Ottoman lands south of the river, while the foreign minister Karl Nesselrode engaged in talks with the Ottomans. Nicholas also assured the British ambassador he had no desire for Russian expansion and was acting to defend the Christian communities in the Ottoman Empire. That statement is still being debated whether or not it, it is true. During negotiations with the Ottomans, Russia issued an ultimatum for the Ottoman Empire to grant Russia protection over all 12 million Orthodox Christians living in the empire and control the Orthodox Church's hierarchy. The Ottomans rejected most of the demands in actions support, an action supported by the British. Knowing war was close to breaking out between the Ottomans and the Russians, the British and French dispatched a naval task force to support the Ottoman Empire. So things were starting to get hot, to say the least. By February 1853, having resigned from the position of British ambassador to the Ottoman Empire in January, Stratford Canning was reappointed to his position and he immediately set sail back to Constantinople, arriving on April 5th. He convinced the Sultan to reject the Russian proposal, saying the demands were a threat to the independence of ethnic Turks. British opposition leader Benjamin Disraeli vocally disapproved of the Prime Minister's, Lord Aberdeen's, and Canning's actions, saying it brought the inevitability of war. This in turn led to a decrease in popularity for Lord Aberdeen's government amongst the public. This becomes important later. Nicholas ordered Russian troops to cross the River Perth into the Danubian principalities of Moldavia and Wallachia. 80,000 Russian troops crossed, but fewer than half returned home, most dying from outbreaks of disease as opposed to combat, a result from poor medical services um, that were available to Russia. Nicholas believed the other European powers would not object to the annexation of the principalities. He was particularly counting on Austrian support since Russian forces aided in defeating the 1848 Hungarian Revolution. Russia was also confident he would have the backing of other European powers, especially Britain, believing they were eager to take advantage of the weakening Ottoman Empire and maybe hoping to grab some land. However, Britain was concerned 
The weakening of the Ottoman Empire would greatly threaten the balance of power in Europe and possibly bring the concert of Europe to an end. They also felt that were they to gain land in the conflict, it would not be the amount Russia would gain and therefore would be actually a disadvantage rather than an advantage. Therefore, they sided with France and the Ottomans on the issue. Austria, concerned about the balance of power as well, also sided with France and the Ottomans, much to the surprise of the Russians. Three months following the Russian invasion, the Ottomans declared war on Russia. The Russian and Ottoman forces first encountered one another in fully open combat at Otanasia, Wolosia, on November 4th, 1853, considered the first battle during the war, but not the first major battle during the war, as we're about to find out. So briefly, the Ottomans took control of Tania and the nearby fort, capturing 10 large guns in the process. 6,000 Russian soldiers were dispatched to form a counterattack, arriving on the 4th of November. 8,000 Ottomans stationed at the fort made use of the heavy guns to bombard Russian soldiers. Russians were not equipped with proper artillery to attack the Ottoman garrison, so the Russians were ordered to withdraw before the attack was made. They lost 900 soldiers in the fighting. Ottoman losses were reported at 200, but it is believed by modern scholars the real numbers were much higher. Ottoman General Omar Pasha, concerned of Russian reinforcements, later abandoned the march to Bucharest and withdrew to the other side of the Danube River by the 15th of November. It is disputed whether this was actually an Ottoman victory or an indecisive battle, but personally I feel the battle was indecisive because both sides made no territorial or strategic gains during the battle. They both basically just left. <laughs> so for the first battle in the war, it wasn't really didn't make a difference. It just kind of showed how both sides were very indecisive, very unprepared, and pretty much looked like it was going to be a big stalemate at this point. There was a lot of points of that. Oh, yeah. Far. However, the Russians kind of made a surprise attack on a place called Sinope, which is located in northern Turkey. The Russian ships set sail to blockade the Black Sea from Ottoman shipping on November 23rd. Naval Commander Osman Pasha knew attempting to break through the Russian blockade would prove disastrous and allowed much of his ships to disembark of their crews, knowing he could not fight, he could, the Navy could not properly fight on the open seas. On November 23rd, 1853, three Russian ships of the line, each with 84 cannons, arrived at the shore of Sinope in northern Turkey and found the Turkish fleet had docked in the harbor, defended by onshore fortifications. Two days later, five more Russian ships arrived, commanded by Vice Admiral Fyodor Novoleski. These ships included vessels which held up to 120 cannons each. That'll Not between them, each. Oh, fuck some shit up. Oh, yeah. Admiral Nakimov made the decision for an attack to be made on the Ottoman fleet at Sinope. The attack force consisted, consisted of six ships of the line, two frigates, and three armored streamers. Imperiesta Maria initiated the attack by firing on the Ottoman flagship Anui Allah. The Russian squadron entered the harbor with Nakimov ordering the ships to position themselves so the Ottoman ships were between the Russians and the harbor defenses, increasing the chance of friendly fire from the Ottoman forces. Results on, on the Ottoman Navy were devastating. Only a single Ottoman ship, the Ta Taif, 
escaped, while the rest were either sunk or purposely ran aground to prevent sinking and thus permanent loss. Russians then engaged and destroyed the Ottoman shore batteries. So the Ottomans got their ass kicked. In the end, 37 Russian soldiers were killed and 229 were wounded, while three ships of the line were damaged. 3,000 Ottomans were killed, 150 were captured, including Osman Pasha. So they lost their most capable naval admiral. Mass celebrations were conducted in Russia while the Ottomans began to panic, understandably. I mean, to put it in perspective, they basically lost their navy that day because yeah. the rest were ordered to go back on shore. So they didn't have a navy they and they lost. Yeah, they lost <laughs> they lost the ability to use the Black Sea yeah. at this battle. Which when you're on a Black Sea port is not great. Oh no. Not, not ideal for you. Yes. However, in the rest of Europe, there mass there was a mass anti-Russian sentiment beginning to grow with the British press even dubbing the battle as a massacre, which mm. isn't necessarily true. That's I mean, a little loose. Yeah. Pro-war factions in Britain and France grew in popularity and provided both countries with a justification for war against the Russian Empire. Contemporary views regard the Battle of Sinope as an important event in naval warfare, and it was the first naval battle to use shrapnel rounds and explosive shots. So basically, just shots that were meant to maim people mm -hmm. or ships, mainly people, and to just explode and fuck things up royally. Yeah. There were a lot of attempts to at peace prior to open war breaking out. So Russia believed that its decisive victory at Sinope had turned favor towards them. However, as I just mentioned, the effects were the exact opposite. In fact, Austria, the one country they had counted on, officially denounced Russia's mobilization into the principalities and the attack on Sinope. France and Britain issued an ultimatum on February 27, 1854, demanding the withdrawal of Russian forces from the principalities. To Tsar Nicholas's surprise, Austria openly supported France and Britain, although they de also declared they would not enter the war. At this time, Russia was Austria's only ally, and its defiance had ultimately en ended the relationship between the two. The ultimatum was listed in four points. One, Russia was to give up its protectorate over the Danubian principalities. Two, the Danube was to be open up to foreign commerce. Three, the Straits Convention of 1841, which permitted only Ottoman and Russian warships to operate in the Black Sea, would be revisited and revised. And fourth, Russia was to abandon any claim granting it the right to interfere in Ottoman affairs on behalf of the Orthodox Christians. Can you guess how Russia might have reacted to, especially the last? Wasn't super pumped. Nope. Russia outright refused to negotiate and rejected the ultimatum. Britain and France decreed it was up to them to intervene and a sentiment that was agreed to by Austria. The Crimean Peninsula was chosen as the place for a joint Anglo-French invasion. Under pressure from Austria, Russian forces withdrew from Wallachia and Moldova in late July 1854, and then Austria moved its army in to deter Russian forces from re-entering the principalities. Now, the, it's important to note that Austria had a way smaller army than a lot of other European powers, especially Russia. 
but they were better equipped, better trained, and better prepared to fight. So Russia was not going to defy them, especially because they didn't want anyone else to go to war with them at this point. I want to limit the number of enemies you make. Yeah, uh, something Hitler never learned from. Yeah. yeah, he wasn't good at that, was he? No. Yeah. Despite the immediate causes belly, which means cause for war, for people who don't know, uh, it was that was now over. It was over. I mean, they left the principalities. Public opinion for war with Russia had increased substantially as a result of press coverage, and thus the re respective governments were pressured into war. And you know, I'm getting some vibes. Like, do you, you remember Iraq? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Sorry, I'm just looking at my notes. So in September 1854, a total of 360 ships from Britain and from France set sail to the Black Sea. A joint force of British, French, and Ottoman forces landed on the shores of Eupatoria on September 13th with the town surrendering immediately. They were not prepared to fight. They were, I believe, I read in one source that were that the only soldiers stationed in the town were town guards good helpful so they were not going to <laughs> risk the fight. nope so they were so without a single shot being fired the 500 marines british royal marines began occupying the town and it was served as a beachhead and fallback positions should the invasion result in a major allied losses a second landing was successfully made at Kalamita Bay on the southwest coast of the peninsula. Russian forces had intelligence the landing was to happen at Katya, but the plan was changed last minute and, the and instead was made at Kalamita Bay. So the Russians were caught completely off guard and were not anywhere near that position to attack them. However, knowing the original battle plans meant that Russian intelligence was on point and this actually really worried the British that something was up something was wrong with how their intelligence was being given between each other now the french were actually a lot more prepared for battle it seems they didn't take that long to unload and dock and get all their siege equipment and just general shit off of their ships the british was a bit of a gong show initial british landings forced hopelessly were undersupplied Many soldiers suffered from cholera and had to be carried off the boats. None of the offloading equipment was brought with any of the ships that arrived. So it forced the British to steal, cart to steal carts and wagons belonging to local Tatar farmers. The tents and kit bags were not offloaded for several days, meaning soldiers spent the first few nights exposed to the elements of heavy rain and high summer temperatures only given three days worth of food and water rations and it took a full five days to fully disembark from the ships yeah it's like for having the world's power, most powerful navy, navy they really suck at putting troops somewhere <laughs> they suck at the deployment of the actual humans like yeah it's we can get you on the boat and the boat will get you there but getting off you're on your own <laughs> whereas i think the french took a day to get everything yeah. off well they were a little more organized oh yeah well it's like you're gonna do all this shit and you don't bring any of the offloading equipment? Yeah. I there don't, a, yeah. It's one of many questionable mistakes that they make in this war. Yeah, and you're gonna hear about the consequences in a bit. 
So after six days, Allied forces marched south towards Sevastopol, which is the main city that's on Crimea even to this day. Yeah, it's still where the Baltic fleet, or the, sorry, the Black Sea fleet is um, located. Just, yeah, stationed. French on the, were located on the right flank with the Turks following behind them, and the British were on the left, further inland. Midday in September 19th, Allied army reached the Bolganak River and came across the Cossack vanguard, who opened fire on scouts of the 13th Light Dragoons. The British regrouped and engaged the Russians in a nearby village, or in a nearby valley, sorry. Russian Commander-in-Chief Prince Menshikov decides to make the River Alma the place for the forces to engage the Allied army as the south of the river had the advantage of high ground perfect for their 100 field guns. 35,000 Russian troops were committed to the defense versus an incoming Allied force of 60,000 infantry and 1,000 cavalry. Russians erected several redoubts, defense formations, a lesser redoubt on the west of Korogani Hill and a greater redoubt on the east. Russian morale was low, with the army doctor recalling how each soldier he spoke to were convinced the battle would result in a Russian defeat. Now there's one thing about when you're fighting a battle. It's important that, that your troops are confident because if they're not confident, they're gonna make mistakes or they're just not gonna even try. So going into a battle with most of your troops feeling that you're going to lose is not, does not make a good impression. Not really, no. So by September 30th, Allied forces had reached the Alma. French and Turks set up on the right of the Sevastopol Road while the British were on the left. All groups decided the day before to make a simultaneous advance on the Russian lines. At the last minute, however, British commander Lord Raglan delayed the British advance in order to wait for the French to break through the right flank. He then ordered his troops to lie on the ground, but within sight of the Russian guns. So for an hour and a half, they lay there, losing men to the Russian artillery and small arms fire. Meanwhile, a French division consisting of mainly North Africans called the Zuvies reached the river and swam across. These men were experienced working in mountainous climates and environments and easily climbed up the cliffs on which the Russians were positioned without ropes, without any assistance. They just climbed straight up the cliffs. This took the Russians by complete surprise with them later comparing their climbing abilities to monkeys scaling up a tree. Now, I'm gonna stop it here. I understand there is a possible racial aspect to this comparison as well, but we're not gonna get into that. French soldiers were also in awe of the Zuvies and were inspired to also climb up as well. Menshevik sent reinforcements to prevent the Russians on the left flank from routing, but they arrived too late to stop the French large guns from making it up the ravine and causing mass casualties. By the time the Russian artillery was set up, the French and Turks had assembled in the plateau. Russians were equipped with more guns, 28 compared to the French's 12, but the French artillery were of larger caliber and could fire a longer distance. French riflemen pinned down the Russian artillerymen, and the Zuvies, sensing low Russian morale, began to dance on the battlefield to taunt the enemy. Good. Yeah. L Lieutenant General V.I. 
Kirchhoff, considered the most incompetent in the Tsarist army and a drunk. They all probably were. Probably. Ordered the Minsk regiment to fire on the French, but in his drunken state had actually directed their aim to the retreating Kiev hussars. Right. Realizing their mistake and losing faith in their commander, the Minsk regiment broke ranks and retreated. British attempts to advance were halted by the Russians setting fire to a nearby village, as well as Raglan's indecisiveness, and no further orders other than just move forward and hope for the best. Again, another of a questionable Raglan decision that will come up later. British eventually advanced beyond the smoke towards the stunned Russian forces. One Russian recalled, quote, We had never before seen troops fight in lines of two deep, nor did we think it possible for men to be found with sufficient firmness of morale to be able to attack in an apparently weak formation of our massive columns, end quote. The British were able to clear the village of Russian soldiers and reach the banks of the Alba. British Scots Fusiliers, Grenadiers, and the Coldstream Guards, who, interestingly, are famous for being one of the guards that guard the Queen, yeah. uh, advanced on the Russian Greater Redoubt with fixed bayonets. Instead of charging, the Coldstreams and Grenadiers fire minet volleys at the Russian advance, allowing the British to close the gap between them and the Russians and forcing the Russians to retreat back into the readout. So that's interesting because they actually defied orders to yeah. charge with bayonets and like, fuck that. You send volleys at them and it proved to be more successful. The Russians were overwhelmed at the greater readout by the British with allied forces surrounding the Russians by 1600 hours. Knowing there is no hope, the Russians break ranks and flee in all directions. In the end, the casualties were 1600 French 2,000 British and around 5,000 Russians. It took two days to clear the, the battlefield of wounded, while the Russians just abandoned their wounded altogether and just left them there on the battlefield. Uh, many of them had to limp all the way back to Sevastopol while a great number were captured. Allied forces were able to collect abandoned Russian equipment for their own use. However, they made a mistake in not pursuing the retreating Russians, which allowed them to regroup for the defense on Sevastopol. Yeah, so we might end up overlapping slightly. But um, yeah, so the siege of Sevastopol was a pretty big ongoing event. <laughs> Sieges don't tend to happen quickly. So it lasted from October 1854 to about September 1855, so just over a year, or just under a year, sorry. I guess arguably, depending on when you want to start the time. But um, this is one of the more classic sieges of all time. It's home to the Black Sea Fleet, which threatened the Mediterranean. So they had a vested interest in getting this port. And then, yeah, when they landed at Eupatoria, like Jonah mentioned, they moved from their base at Balaclava to start building siege lines to the south of Sebastopol. They built redoubts, guns, gun batteries, and trenches. So they really set up, like, a good, a pretty good defense. Or a good base, I guess. And then on the Russian side, the defense of Sevastopol was led by Vice Admirals Vladimir Alexeyevich Kornilov and Pavel Nakimov. And they were assisted by Commander Prince Menchikov's chief engineer. The military forces that were available to protect the city were 4,500 militia, 2,700 gunners, 4,400 marines, 18,500 18, naval seamen, and 5,000 workmen, totaling about 35,000 men in total. When the Russians obviously saw the British were coming for them, they began to scuttle their ships to protect the harbor, and this, for those of you who don't know, scuttling means intentionally sinking. So 
the other Russians began scuttling their ships and then used their naval cannons as additional artillery, and uh, the ship's crews became Marines. The, ship, the ships that were deliberately sunk by the end of 1855 included the Grand Duke Constantine, the city of Paris, uh, Brave Empress Maria, Chesme, uh, Yagondide, Kavarna, uh, Konlefi, Steam Frigate Vladimir, and Steamboat Thunderer, Bessar, Bessarabia, Danube, Odessa, Elbrus, and Krine. So they sunk a decent number of ships. But they, kind of, they could spare it. Um, it's better to sink your ships to the bottom of the ocean than have them get captured. So, By mid-October 1854, the Allies had some 120 guns ready to fire on Sevastopol, but the Russians had about three times as many. So, yeah. <laughs> they, were, they were pretty well set up. <laughs> yeah, so this is going to get confusing. So at the time, the Russian Empire still used the Julian calendar. So the Orthodox Church still uses the Julian cal- calendar for especially holidays, and the Julian calendar is 13 days behind the Gregorian calendar, which we use. So these dates are kind of, like, misleading. So on October 5th, which is the old-style date, the Julian calendar, the new style would be October 17th, 1854, the artillery battle began. The Russian artillery first destroyed a French magazine, silencing their guns, and then British fire then set off the magazines in the Malakoff Malakoff readout, killing Admiral Kornilov and silencing most of the Russians gun- Russian guns there, which left a gap in the city's defenses. Uh, the British and French withheld their planned infantry attack and basically missed a good opportunity for an early end to the siege because they silenced a big part of the Russian defense and then didn't do anything about it. So to support Allied land forces, the Allied fleet pounded the Russian defenses and shore batteries. But after six hours, the Allied fleet had really inflicted little damage on the Russian defenses and coastal artillery batteries, while at the same time suffering, like, about 340 casualties in total among their own fleet. So they basically were just, like, slamming Russia with bombs and not doing anything instead of hurting themselves somehow. (laughs) Um, In this initial barrage, uh, two British warships were so badly damaged that they were towed to the arsenal in Constantinople for repairs, and remained out of action for the remainder of the siege, while most of the other warships also suffered serious damage due to direct hits from Russian coastal artillery. The bombardment resumed by the Russians, or but the Russians repaired the damage as fast as it, they were hit. So basically, the British just wasted a lot of firepower on the, on the city. During October and November, the battles of Balaclava and Inkerman took place beyond the siege lines. Uh, I'll get to Balaclava in, like... Shortly, but just briefly, they were happening at the same time. Uh, so while those were happening, there was also still a siege happening. But after the defeat at Inkerman, the Russians saw that a siege of Sebast- Sebastopol wouldn't be lifted by a battle in the field and moved their troops to the city to aid the defenders. They just realized that we're just going to waste manpower, essentially, if we keep doing this. Near the end of November, a winter storm ruined the Allies' compound. Um, so putting it mildly. Yes, yeah, so there's like the weather actually is kind of important in this war because there's multiple times when it has a, an impact. Um, the first was at the beginning of November on the 5th. There was really heavy fog. And this was the day of the first major, major Russian offensive. And there was ma- heavy fog. And it ended up actually impacting the war for them because unexpectedly it helped the Russians conceal their lineup and start of their assault. So they had a bit of an element of surprise because of the weather. But then this other event, which happened on the 14th of November, was um, 
a massive storm began to roll in, and it <laughs> decimated the, the Allies for a while. Yeah, it had significant consequences for the, the French Navy. Um, they lost the battleship Henry IV, which is was the pride of the French Navy, so not great to lose that. Uh, <laughs> probably not good, but anyway. Um, <laughs> sorry. Just like... Yeah, so it was the first, like, late autumn month for the Allied fleets in Crimean waters ever, so they weren't really used to this. Uh, the weather was stormy and menacing, which aroused some concern for the safety of the ships. For their destruction by stormy weather would have doomed the Allies' invasion. So the night of the 10th, 11th of November, it was especially tough waters. So it was feared that the, the anchor cables would be snapped and ships would head for the beaches, essentially. <laughs> so preventative action became imperative, and on the morning of the 11th, the French worked out a plan where the French and the British would keep a total of 14 warships, equal in number to that of the Russian warships held in the area, and a minimum number of supply and service vessels, but all the rest would be sent to the Bosphorus for wintering and called back in case of need, and the plan was approved. The scenario that was outlined on the 11th about, you know, fearing that ships' cables were going to snap and end up on beaches, that came true on the 4th, on the 14th. <laughs> so... It was, like, really ominous the day before. It was a really nice, clear day. And then early in the morning on the 14th, a storm began to move in and took a toll. And it was tough because it, it sank some ships, it damaged some ships, and it also made it really difficult for the men who were in the camps because their supply lines had been severed, <laughs> their tents had all been destroyed, and they weren't really used to dealing with cold weather, so it was really bad for them as well. Either way... Not really good. Russian winter to the rescue once again for the Russians. Pretty much. Um, this is like an occurring theme in history. Like Russian weather is actually like a legitimate historical topic when concerning wars yeah. because it saved them from Napoleon. It saved them from um, Hitler. It saved them from this, like to some extent. It saved them from like all of the things, basically. Yeah, it's the same with like the landscape of Afghanistan. Yeah. Being everyone's downfall there pretty much. Well, and I mean other factors obviously too, yeah. but... Anyways, as I mentioned, the Battle of Balaclava was happening at the same time as the siege in October. And uh, I'm going to get this out of the way now because it's been a problem for me while doing this research is I keep reading the word Balaclava as baklava. So I've been really craving baklava the whole time I've been researching. Um, if I accidentally call it baklava, I didn't mean to and I'm sorry, but that's why. The words look kind of similar and also tasty cake. Um, <laughs> anywho... The, the Battle of Belaclava was fought on the 25th of October, 1854. I think that's the Gregorian date. I don't really know anymore. Um, and it happened, obviously, during the siege. The siege's intentions, obviously, again, were to capture the port and the fortress of Sevastopol. The engagement at Belaclava followed an earlier Allied victory at the Battle of Elma. Elma was a clear success for the British, but they had a tardy pursuit of the Russians after the Russians had retreated. And it basically meant that they didn't get a very decisive victory, and it allowed the Russians to regroup, which is really a common theme, it seems, for the British for the first part of this war, because, like, they did a lot of, like, we'll attack, and then we're going to wait and stick to our plan, even though they had breaks and they could have seized upon them. They really didn't. Some pretty incompetent people at the helm, I think, in this war for, <laughs> yeah, in general, all over, both sides of the, the war. So the Russians split their forces. Uh, they, the Navy handled the defenses of the city until, like I mentioned, the Russians lost an increment and decided that defending the city was the main priority. And then the army, who was under the control of Prince Menshikov, 
was more mobile and it handled other duties. So the Allies decided against a slow assault on Sevastopol and instead prepared for a protracted siege. The British and French positioned their troops to the south of the port on the Chernese, or Cherisonese Peninsula. Sorry, the French occupied the Bay of Kemish. I really these are I'm butchering this, so sorry. And on the west coast, while well, the British moved to the southern port of Balaclava. This is positioned the British to defend the right flank of the Allied siege operations, and the British were undermanned for the job. So the Russians took advantage of the exposure and prepared to attack the defenses around Balaclava, hoping to disrupt the supply chains. So uh, Raglan, yeah, had to take over this whole section, and he did not have nearly enough men, so they were stretched quite thin. Recent intelligence by the British had indicated that a major Russian attack was imminent, but there was a number of false alarms the previous week, and British commander Raglan failed to act because he believed that this new intelligence was again just needlessly exhausting his men, who were stretched thin already. But this time, the intelligence was on point, and at 5 a.m. on October 25th, under the command of uh, General Leprandi, troops of the Shorgun Detachment left their camp and marched off in silence towards the Balaclava Valleys. Or valleys. So uh, Leprandi was the Russian commander who had been in charge of these people, basically, um, and the Shorgun Detachment comprised of 17 battalions, 34 squadrons, and 64 guns, totaling about 16,000 men. His total strike force that was available, I believe, was 25,000 because they uh, had made up from some other regiments. So the village of Kamara was a useful observation point for the Allies, and in the dawn, a squadron of Russian Cossacks and Ulans, which are the Polish light cavalry, uh, rode slowly toward the village, and they made it past the picket, which is basically a scout or a group of scouts who warn of attack. So the Russians had made it past the picket and weren't discovered until Captain Lowe of the, fort, of the 4th Light Dragoons noticed them when he came on as duty field officer of the day, and the group of officer, or the group of people who were the picket would have actually died if he hadn't caught them because they were there's some some rumors or at least some uh, disagreement about why the picket didn't see the Russians, but one of the reasons is that they think they were sleeping. So, you know, not doing their jobs, <laughs> obviously. Uh, so behind the Cossack, Cossacks and Ulans came the Dnieper Regiment along with artillery. So the Russians were, you know, prepared. The battle officially began at around 7, 6 a.m. when Ottoman guns from readout number one started firing and Reglan was informed that the readouts were being attacked. The Ottoman readouts formed Balaclava's first line of defense. They initially resisted Russian assaults but lacked support and were eventually forced to retreat. When the readouts fell, the Russian cavalry moved to engage the second defensive line in the South Valley held by the Ottoman and British 93rd Highland Regiment. When the first four readouts fell... Raglan realized he had misjudged the Russian strategy, and all that protected Balaclava were some cavalry, the 93rd Highlanders, and some Ottomans. So, super not ideal for him. It was, again, another just, like, miscalculation on his part. He expected the Russians to go, essentially, like, distract the British by attacking them in this position, and then refocus their efforts on Sevastopol, but Raglan definitely underestimated that, and the Russians were actually coming for Balaclava because they had seen this opening. The Russians appeared to have the intention and means to capture the British base in a shorter period than it took for Raglan's two infantry divisions to be marched down to the, the plain of Balaclava. And so it took Raglan a long time to finally order men to get to the, the, the bottom of the, the plain, and it took about two hours for them to march, and the Russians definitely had the intention and the means to get there faster. So, again, 
not great. <laughs> and this is all leading up to a really tragic event. At approximately 7.45 a.m., Lord Cardigan, commander of the Light Brigade, reached his cavalry from his yacht moored in the Balaclava Harbor. Must be nice to be an officer. <laughs> um, Raglan, meanwhile, had taken up a position in the hills overlooking the plain. Unwilling to risk his cavalry without infantry support, Raglan issued his first order to the cavalry division. Quote, Cavalry, take ground to the left of the second line of redoubts occupied by the Turks. End quote. The order was ambiguous and misleading. His viewpoint made it so that no one was sure exactly who's left. And uh, there was no second line of readouts, that, so also, what? Um, but on this occasion, Commander Lucan, the third Earl of, yeah, third Earl of Lucan, so Commander Lucan, uh, interpreted correctly and moved his cavalry west between readout six and the foot of the heights so they could not be seen by or engage with the Russians. So one ambiguous order, but fortunately Lucan managed to interpret it correctly. Remember this, it's going to be a theme. Um, the Russians brought on Commander Ryzov's cavalry to press home his advantage. So the first few waves of cavalry and first few waves of the strike force had been really successful, and Ryzov was essentially the last group of cavalry to run in. His force consisted of eight squadrons of Kiev Hussars, six of the 12th in Germanland Hussars, three of the 53rd Don Cossack Regiment, and the first Ural Cossacks, totaling about two to 3,000 men and 16 guns. The estimates on how many men there were is iffy, so between two and three thousand. Uh, Ryzov saw the Highlanders exposed and detached four of the Germanland Hussars to I also seriously butchered that I don't know how to say that word, so here we are but anyways, he sent some Hussars to head straight for the infantry division that he saw exposed um, and so Sir Colin Campbell who was commander of the Highlanders and therefore the 93rd Highlander Regiment or Highland Regiment, brought his men forward and the with Balaclava and the Black Sea behind them, that's literally all that was there, um, told them there was no retreat from here. So die on your feet. And uh, barely five minutes after it began, the Hazars were in retreat. It became known as the Thin Red Line because there was, looking down over the plain, there was literally a thin streak of Highlanders and Redcoats fighting this onslaught of 400 cavalrymen. And they managed to win. So Ryzhov got his guys back because they retreated. And Ryzov had remained on the slopes overlooking the plane because he was obviously the commander and needed to see where he needed to send people. But in the meantime, the heavy brigade, heavy brigade which was led by Lukan, turned and charged kind of towards Ryzov. Uh, the reason I say kind of is because Ryzov was on a hill and they had to charge uphill, so it wasn't really fast. It wasn't really a charge, I guess. <laughs> so the heavy brigade consisted of eight squadrons, two each of the Scots Greys, Six, dra six Dragoons, Fourth Dragoons, and Fifth Dragoons. The brigade's remaining two squadrons from the first Royal Dragoons were left in their original position. So those regiments turned and charged up the hill toward Ryzov, and the charge of the Heavy, heavy Brigade lasted about ten minutes, which caught Ryzov flat-footed, and his men retreated. It killed about 40 to 50 Russians and wounded about 200. So the Russians retreated to the east end of the North Valley, and Cardigan's light brigade were nearby but failed to chase after them as Cardigan cited orders to defend his position by Lucan. Lucan disagreed, saying that he had, yes, he had told them to defend their position, but also, you know, catch the enemy. And uh, either way, <laughs> there was a lot of frustration and an opportunity had been missed again. The British were really good at just not capitalizing on those opportunities. This is like the third one in the last five minutes that they just couldn't seem to get it together. And then by 9.30 that morning, the first part of the battle was over, essentially. 
Uh, Leprandi's forces had had mixed success, um, but they occupied good positions on the heights and in the North Valley. So there's three different heights that are happening, are part of this plane. Uh, the Causeway Heights, the... Oh, crap. I can't remember the name of the other two, but there's three. And so they had, they had good positions. They had taken some losses, including they'd lost the Thin Red Line, and they'd taken a few losses, but for the most part, they at least had some success. Yeah, so Ryzov had retreated to the eastern end of the North, North Valley, and in front of Ryzov's cavalry were the eight guns of the third Don, Don Cossack battery commanded by Prince of Lensky. So, yeah, Ryzov basically just retreated to this safe space, basically, hidden behind a battery. The guns that Oblensky had were six and nine pounders served by 200 men, and these were pointed directly down to the North Valley. And this is kind of ominous. <laughs> uh, so Raglan was anxious to exploit the success of the heavy, heavy brigade, but infantry divisions had still not arrived, and every minute that passed gave the Russians time to prepare their defenses. So those infantry divisions that Raglan had ordered that I had said would take about two hours, he was right, the Russians were able to capture this in much less time, so the infantry hadn't arrived yet. And Raglan was frustrated because the light brigade hadn't chased after, chased after the enemy, and it was becoming kind of disordered. But Raglan mistakenly believed that the enemy had retreated in such disorder that a show of force by his cavalry in advance of the infantry's arrival would be enough to persuade the Russians to abandon the Causeway Heights. At 10 a.m., he gave his third order to the cavalry division, quote, cavalry advance and take advantage of any opportunity to recover the heights. They will be supported by infantry, which have been ordered. Advance on two fronts, end quote. Raglan wanted his cavalry to advance immediately, but due to the ambiguity of the order, there was another misunderstanding. Lucan had assumed he was to first wait for infantry before moving forward and sent the light brigade into the North Valley while the heavy brigade held the entrance to the South Valley, perhaps in response to the, quote, to the order to advance on two fronts. Lucan believed that he had compiled or complied with the order as much as possible, because it was confusing and weird, um, before the infantry had arrived, but Raglan was impatient with his immobile cavalry. He was looking down over them and being like, why aren't you going anywhere? What the hell? <laughs> At this moment, someone informed Raglan that the Russians were hauling away the captured British guns, <laughs> and infantry was close, but only cavalry could catch them fast enough. So Raglan was now being panicked by the fact that the readouts and guns that had been captured were being taken, <laughs> and he's like, ah, panicking. So he issued his fourth and final order. He dictated it to General Richard Airy, and then it was passed on. So the order was to be understood in conjunction with the third as an instruction to do immediately what had previously been ordered. So at 10.45 a.m., the order cites, quote, Lord Raglan wishes the cavalry to advance rapidly to the front, follow the enemy, and prevent the enemy, carrying away the guns. Troop horse artillery may accompany. French cavalry is on your left. Our Airy, immediate. Captain Noland of the 15th King's Hussars was sent to deliver the message to Lucan, and as he rode down to Lucan, Raglan called after him, quote, tell Lord Lucan the cavalry is to attack immediately, end quote. These words sealed the fate of the Light Brigade, which some of you may know what's about to happen. It was detailed in a pretty famous poem, and if any of you are Iron Maiden fans, they sang about the poem, so, you know, someone's gotta know. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> Anywho, once again, the order was imprecise and there was confusion because clear orders aren't a thing that happened in this battle. I guess maybe more on the Russian side than the British side. <laughs> um, this war in general. Yeah, I don't know. It's a mess. Uh, once again, the order was, it's honestly almost funny. Like, it would be funny if it wasn't so sad. Yeah. Um, well, what it, it, 
comedy equals tragedy plus time, right? Basically, yeah. yeah. Like, now, some of this is comical. It's ridiculous. Anyway. Yeah, so the order was imprecise. There was confusion. The biggest problem was that in the order, there was no mention of heights. Only the front. So Lucan had no idea what that meant. And gone were all references to infantry, so now he didn't even know if he had infantry support. Lucan also could not see any guns being taken anywhere, and when he questioned the excited Nolan, Nolan told him to attack immediately. Nolan had gestured imprecisely, not towards the readouts and guns being taken away, but to the Russian guns guarding Ryzov's cavalry at the end of the valley. So Nolan actually knew what the actual order was, because he was there when it happened, and he knew what Raglan had wanted. But Lucan was taken aback by Nolan's insolence. So Nolan had, you know, been kind of an ass, or he was insolent when uh, Lucan was like, what? <laughs> I'm not a, there's nothing there. And Nolan, Nolan's like, attack, attack, attack. And I think Lucan was like, no. So he didn't want to talk to him anymore, which was a problem because Nolan actually knew what the hell was going on. And if Lucan had pressed him further, he might have gotten more clear instructions. But instead, Lucan was not having it and rode towards Cardigan to give him the order. So Cardigan questioned the insane order, which was essentially to charge your cavalry towards a bunch of guns. And Cardigan, yeah, so he, he questioned that. And Lucan agreed that it was insane and that they shouldn't do it, but said Reglin had ordered it and, quote, we have no choice today, end quote. So the light brigade formed up in two lines. The 13th Dragoons, the 17th Lancers, and the 11th Hussars formed the first line. And the second line was formed by the 4th Light Light Dragoons and the 8th Hussars. Once the brigade left, Lucan would follow with the Heavy Brigade. At 11.10 a.m., the Light Brigade began to move, and after 200 yards, the enormity of the misconstrued order became apparent to those watching in the Sapone Heights. It's one of the other heights. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So instead of inclining to the right towards the Causeway Heights, like as was the order, the Light Brigade continued towards Oblensky's battery at the end of the valley. It was too late. Nolan was the first to be killed when he dashed in front of Cardigan, either to force the pace, because he was excited, or realizing the mistake that had been made, and tried to change the direction of the brigade towards Raglan's intended objective. No one's really sure, and Nolan died. The heavies soon followed, and were hit, and uh, Lucan actually was injured and his horse was killed, but they would have suffered worse had the French cavalry not formed left and led an attack up one of, up one of the heights to flank the Russian battery after seeing the light brigade get cut up by fire. Lucan saw that the light brigade was going to be wiped out and halted the heavy brigade, leaving Cardigan without support. He said to Lord Pallet, who was with him, quote, they have sacrificed the light brigade. They shall not have the heavy if I can help it, end quote. At 11.15 a.m., the eight Russian guns on the Causeway Heights opened fire on the light brigade. At a distance of 250 yards, which is about 230 meters from the battery, Cardigan ordered a gallop. And so we went through this scene of Cartage, wondering each moment which would be our last, reported Peget, who was observing with Raglan. So they kept going, and then Cardigan ordered the charge. There was some retreat by the Russian gunners, but they stood and fought. The Russians were a little bit confused. Once some of the cavalry had made it through, they were not really convinced that they could hold them. And so some turned to retreat, but others were smart enough to know that you don't retreat from the cavalry, because, like, they can just chase you down and stab you. So... (laughs) You know, you don't run away <laughs> through backs of the cavalry. So at 11.17 a.m., seven minutes later, half of the original 250 men of the 17th and 13th reached the battery. So a lot had died. 
Some of the survivors fought with the Russians and tried to capture their guns, while the others reformed into small groups preparing to charge the Russian cavalry, which was behind the battery. It was a pretty small group at this point, and it was in disarray. I don't know what happened to Cardigan. They never really said if he actually died, but I assume since he was at the front with Nolan, he probably did. I didn't look it up. I... Whatever. There's a good chance he died. Yeah, so some of Ryzov's cavalry saw this happening, and Hussars and Cossacks, they seemed to be freaked out, I guess, and they tried to retreat, and they reached a bottleneck at the Chernaya River because there was only one bridge to get across. So the 11th Hussars joined in on the melee, and Colonel Douglas, with about 80 survivors, charged and pushed the Russians back to the Chernaya River officially. The 4th Light Dragoons moved next. Um... Sorry, Cardigan survived. Did he? Yes. Oh, okay, cool. Good for him. I wasn't sure. I didn't really, didn't really specify. I didn't look super hard, because ultimately... So, yeah, the 4th Light Dragoons moved next, but at this point, the survivors of the Light Brigade were all now behind Russian guns in the valley, and the turning point in this battle started to happen now, because they realized that Lucan and the Heavy Brigade weren't following. The Light Brigade managed to survive the onslaught... <laughs> that was impossible, get behind Russian guns and keep fighting, only to realize that their help was not there at all. And the Russians obviously noticed too. So unexpectedly, the group of soldiers actually managed to break through this Russian trap because the Russians noticed that there, weren't, there was no support and all of the British were trapped behind their lines, so they moved to try and flank them and trap them. And Raglan had even basically looked away, knowing they were going to be wiped out. He basically just assumed the Light Brigade was done. <laughs> Unexpectedly, though, the group of soldiers managed to come through. Uh, they came under fire again once they got past that point, because they were still pretty far from British lines. And a Russian general, a Russian lieutenant, Kordobut Kubitovich, <laughs> admitted that the English fought with astounding bravery. Most of the survivors of the Charge of the Light Brigade made it back to British lines by 12 p.m., and the whole affair lasted about 20 minutes. The loss of the Light Brigade was so traumatic that the Allies were in incapable of further action, further action for the day. Of the approximately 666 men, so doomed number, if you're superstitious, uh, of the 666 men, 207 became casualties. 110 were killed, 129 were wounded, plus 32 were wounded and taken prisoner. About 375 horses were killed. Raglan could not now risk his infantry divisions to attempt to move Leprandi from the Causeway Heights. He had basically just lost the entire Light Brigade and wasn't going to give up the Heavy Brigade, and I'm pretty sure that Lucan would have mutinied if that was the case anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the Battle of Belakava was a victory for the Russians and a welcome morale boost. They had been, you know, being punched in the face in Sevastopol for a while, and it was a good victory for them. But, uh, I mean, the charge of the Light Brigade was also one of the most ill-fated events in British military history. So the Russians got a little lucky, but yeah, so the, it was a big, big morale boost for them. Pretty much all of the officers who had fought for the Russians were awarded for this battle because they had all managed to, I mean, they won in part because the British were incompetent and also because the Russians did put up a good fight. Uh, the Russian cavalry has always been really top-notch. The Cossacks are one of the most well-respected horse soldiers <laughs> in the world, so General Samyakin wrote of the conflict, quote, Many Turks and English were killed by our Russian bayonets, and many English were pierced with the lances of our Cossacks and Uhlans, and by the sabers of, his of our Hussars. God grant that the heart of the Hussar rejoices, end quote. And then, essentially, after that, all armies were going to be reinforced again anyway. So this was a pretty early on 
battle, which brings us back to Sevastopol. Uh, there was the Battle of Inkerman as well, which I didn't look too much into. It was another big one, but essentially what matters is that the British won and the Russians took a pretty solid beating and as a result decided that they were done fighting outside of Sevastopol because it was a waste of resources and people. So after the winter, the Allies were able to restore many of their supply routes. Part of that was because the new Grand Crimean Central Railway, which is a really nice name for like 20 kilometers of track, was, <laughs> was finished in March of 1855 and was now bringing in supplies from Balaclava to the siege lines. Um, so the railway... Uh, essentially serviced the Allied soldiers that were based on the plateau between Balaclava and Sevastopol. And the purpose of it was literally to supply ammunition and provisions to those people because rail is much faster than horses and people. The railway was built at cost and without any contract by a partnership of, between the English railway contractors and the government. Within three weeks of the arrival of the fleet carrying materials, and men, the railway had started to run, and in seven weeks, 11 kilometers of a track had been completed. The railway was a total length of about 23 kilometers upon completion. After the end of the war, the track was sold and removed. But the railway was a major factor in leading to the success of the siege because it allowed supplies to reach the lines faster and to keep pressure on the Russians as a result. It even carried the, the world's first hospital train, so it got wounded men away faster, too. I think the railway was, like, one of those welcome not fuck-ups on the part of the British because it allowed them to not fuck up so bad because they didn't have to, like, lose out on opportunities to attack because of a lack of supplies. At least they had that shored up. All of the other fuck-ups were just pure ineptitude rather than uh, logistical problems, I guess. The railway actually, sorry, delivered more than 500 guns to the Allies as well, so a very significant number. And, yeah, they resumed their bombardment on April 8th, which is Easter Sunday. So kind of a, an extra slap in the face of the Russians. On June 28th, or July 10th, um, whichever you prefer, Admiral Nakamov died from a head wound inflicted by an Allied sniper. So they were down to zero commanders, because uh, the first guy died in the first part. And then on August 24th, or September 5th, the Allies started their sixth and most severe bombardment. So 307 cannons fired 150,000 rounds, with Russians suffering two to 3,000 casualties a day. It was the final assault with a total strength of 60,000, and it began on August 27th or September 8th. So basically starting on August 24th, the British just, like, went for the jugular, and they ended up succeeding. They, they took Sevastopol, or they won the battle of the siege of Sevastopol, essentially. And that was a pretty big blow to the Russians, because that obviously is... It's not the end of the war, but it's kind of the end of the war for them in a way. Basically, it's yeah. like that's that's a pretty big. Uh, that's their main foothold. In yeah, it's a it's a big it's a big blow. It's their it's their port. Yeah. So not great. No. <laughs> they held on for like a whole year though, so yeah, they, something. It was, they were pretty brave with what they did at Sevastopol. It just like it was just impossible. I, I think that they just they didn't have the same level of supply lines and the same level of just like money and people behind them that the British government has even, right? Yeah. The Russian Empire was kind of the the military by the time the Nicholas's hit was pretty raggedy. <laughs> pretty much. So. so we're gonna pull a little bit of uh out of chrono chronology, because we're gonna go back a little bit. During the winter while the siege of Sevastopol was happening, another interesting development was happening in which 
journalists were on the front lines. Particularly, it was an Irish journalist named William Howard Russell of the Times. He spent 22 months covering the war with photographer Roger Fenton, and both are credited by historians as being the first modern war correspondents. Russell would use the London Crimea telegraph cable to send reports back to the Times, meaning the news of the war could be sent back within hours and in time for the following day's publications. But he wouldn't just talk about the battles proceeding. He witnessed quite a few battles. He witnessed the Battle of Alma. He witnessed the Battle of Balaclava. And he witnessed much of the Siege of Sebastopol. So he talked about what was going on on the front, but he'd also spend time with the soldiers and detail their day-to-day -day life, what things were like in the camps and the issues with the supply lines and with how they were being treated and everything. So because of his writings and Fenton's photographs, the public quickly became enraged at the war's happenings, and, but they were also becoming more informed about the issues happening on the front. So what was happening in Crimea was now, for the first time in a conflict really, was now public knowledge. This led to a sway in public opinion against the war, which had very drastic effects on Lord Aberdeen's government in the winter of 1855. On January 29th, 1855, MP John Arthur Roebuck called for an appointment of a committee to investigate the conduct committed by the British government during the war, which passed with a 305 vote for yes. Lord Aberdeen saw this as a motion of no confidence and the next day resigned as Prime Minister and then retired from politics completely. Lord Palmerston, former Foreign Secretary, succeeded him and worked to expand the war in order to incite unrest within Russia and diminish the Russian threat to Europe. Prussia and Sweden stated they were willing to join the Allies, effectively isolating Russia from the rest of Europe. Furthermore, to make things worse, around the same time, the small country of, or semi-small country of Piedmont Sardinia, which was the largest of the Italian states at the time, decided to join the war on the side of the Allies. The reason why they did this is because they were hoping to gain public support to unify Italy. So this was the first step to A, gain battle experience, and B, gain favor from the British and the French and the others. The Russians attempted to attack Eupatoria, which was at the time being defended by 30,000 Ottoman troops along with support from French cavalry and British naval. The Ottomans were actually successful in holding the city and pushed the Russians back, which is a much needed morale boost for the diminishing Ottoman forces. Tsar Nicholas I became overcome with guilt for having sent his troops to Crimea and white witnessing them dying of cold and lack of supply. This weakened his health. He died of pneumonia on March 2nd, 1855. He was succeeded by his son Alexander II. So that's pretty much what happened with the, furthermore, with the war correspondence. So I gotta mention back in the day when you're taking photographs, it was a long process. Fenton brought an entire photo photography wagon with him to the front lines. So a large wagon where he can go in the back of and develop his film. Like it's the craziest, like there are photos of his wagon like in the, this barren, desolate battlefield. So imagine like lugging that thing around while 
cannon fire and gunshots are going on around you. But also, Russell's correspondence on the conditions in Crimea led the Lord Palmerston's government to increase supply and equipment to the front line. It also led to a very important woman coming into play. Yeah, so Florence Nightingale. It's actually kind of convenient that she comes up, I guess, because it is Women's History Month, so she's a pretty important figure, and that's exciting that we get to talk about her as well. So, uh, for those of you who don't know anything about her, um, ow, Florence, sorry, we're sitting on the floor because the Panhistoria pillow fort still hasn't happened, and I'm really still working on it. Still pushing for that, so like, if you guys could just shout out on, on social to Jonah, like, hashtag Panhistoria Pillow Fort, that'd be great. I'm working on it. Uh-huh. I feel like a crowd crowd campaign, though. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm trying to drive some, some people to talk to us on social media. Anyway, Florence Nightingale. Um, she was a, a social reformer and a statistician, uh, but she's mostly famous, actually, for her being the founder of, of modern nursing. And there's a lot of nurses in my family, so if they are actually listening to this, this is for you guys. Anyway, her most famous contribution came during the Crimean War, which is why we're talking about her at the moment. And it became her central focus, because once reports from those war correspondents reached Britain about the horrific conditions of the wounded, she was very interested. So on October 21st, 1854, she and the staff and a staff of 38 women volunteer nurses whom she had trained, and 15 Catholic nuns were sent to the Ottoman Empire. Nightingale was assisted in Paris by her friend Mary Clark. They were deployed about 546 kilometers across the Black Sea from Balaclava in the Crimea, where the main British camp was based. Nightingale arrived early in November 1854 at the Sutari barracks in modern-day Istanbul. Uh, her team found that the poor care for wounded soldiers was being delivered by overworked medical staff in the face of official indifference. So it was a pretty disgusting scene when she got there. Uh, medicine was in short supply, hygiene was being neglected, and mass infections were common. Many of them were fatal. And there was no equipment to process food for the patients, so a lot of them, if they had injuries that hurt their ability to eat, would probably starve to death. Uh, not good. So Nightingale actually sent a plea to the Times for a government solution, so she actually went through the press and acted in a way like a war correspondent as well, because she decided to go through the press rather than straight to the government, because public pressure will get you what you want. <laughs> Court of public opinion is important. And so the government commissioned Isambard Kingdom Brunel to design a prefabricated hospital that could be built in England and shipped to the Dardanelles. The result was the Renkoy Hospital, a civilian facility that had a death rate less than one-tenth of the barracks that Florence Nightingale was in. It was under supervision of Dr. Edmund Alexander Parks. So it was a really positive development for other wounded than the one she was actually dealing with, but it was still a positive development because it forced the government to realize, like, oh, we're not taking care of the people that are getting hurt. That's a problem. We're just actually losing men rather than trying to make them better and send them back. We're just, we're just letting people die. This isn't good. So Nightingale is ultimately credit, credited with reducing the death rate in this barracks from 42% to 2% by either directly implementing hygiene improvements herself or by getting the sanitary commission involved which is ultimately what she did as well. So during her first winter at Sutari, 4,077 soldiers died. Ten times more soldiers died because of illness, like typhoid, typhus, cholera, and dysentery, than from being wounded. So basically, like, 
if you got wounded, you kind of hoped that you could be repaired in the field because you really didn't want to go to the barracks because there was a reasonable chance you'd actually die there from something completely unrelated. Either you'd get a nasty infection that would kill you or you'd get typhus. So, yeah, not good. <laughs> this was essentially due to overcrowding defective sewers and a lack of ventilation. And so the Sanitary Commission was deployed in March 1855, almost six months after Nightingale had originally arrived. Uh, death rates were sharply reduced as the sewers were flushed and the ventilation was improved. Nightingale still believed that the poor nutrition, lack of supplies, and state of the air and overworking soldiers were contributors, but also realized that sanitation and uh, ventilation were really important. So after she returned to Britain after the war, she began collecting evidence before the Royal Commission on the Health of the Army. She came to believe that most of the soldiers who died at the hospital were killed by poor living conditions. So yeah, lack of access to supplies, lack of the, you know, backed up sewers and just introducing nasty stuff, no clean water, which is a, a breeding ground for things like cholera, especially. Cholera is actually surprisingly easy to solve. You just need for clean water. That's why it's gone mostly, but also so deadly and a tool of warfare in a way is that you can contaminate a water source and give people cholera. Yeah, so she actually, as a result of this, became an advocate of sanitary living conditions being taken seriously, not just for the military, but also for everybody. Nightingale was known as the lady with the lamp during the war because she was really dedicated to the cause. The thing about Nightingale that really set her apart wasn't that she was, it was also that she was incredibly intelligent and figured these things out, but also that she was really compassionate and even after, you know, medical staff would retire for the night, she would continue with a lamp on her rounds and check on soldiers and visit with them overnight all the time. Nightingale exhibited a gift for, I mean, unrelated to nursing, but also related to nursing. Um, Nightingale also exhibited a gift for mathematics and became a pioneer in the visual representation of information and statistical graphs. So she was, like, really good at math and stats and used those to help her improve the lives of people. Um, she used her experience in the Crimea and turned her attention to the health of the British Army in India because they were also colonizing India at the time and demonstrated that bad drainage, contaminated water, and overcrowding and poor ventilation were causing the high death rate in India as well. And she concluded that the health of the army and the people of India had to go hand in hand, and so she campaigned to improve the sanitary conditions of the country as a whole. So Florence Nightingale is actually like a really well-respected figure in India still. There's still an award that's given out by the Indian government in her name because she had done a lot to improve the conditions of not just the British army, but also the people that they were colonizing because she realized that those people are still people and they need to live in better conditions if they're going to survive. So she's like really well respected in India still. She led a comprehensive study of sanitation in Indian rural life and was the leading figure in the introduction of improved medical care and public health service in India. So she, like a lot of any, I feel like any public health structure, anything that still exists in India is a direct result of her. So important. The Royal Sanitary Commission, who she worked for, at this time, I think, or worked with, presented Nightingale with an opportunity to press for compulsory sanitation in private houses. So at this time, the working class still didn't have indoor sanitation, basically. And it was a reason that the health was so poor amongst working classes. Uh, she lobby lobbied the minister responsible to strengthen a proposed bill that would require owners of existing properties to pay for connections to mains drainage, so it would allow the working class to not live in total squalor. The legislation was enacted in 18, with the Public Health Acts of 1874 and 1875. 
Uh, her Crimean War statistics had convinced her that non-medical approaches were more effective given the state of knowledge at the time. So medical technology was still pretty... It was better than it had been, but it was pretty rudimentary, and our understanding of things like germs, I think, were still probably pretty rudimentary, and there weren't a lot of good drugs and medicines. So anything that could be fixed by non-medical approaches, like fixing living conditions and making the lives of people better, was probably going to have a much greater effect than using whatever limited medical reaction you can have. It was more of a preventative plan than a... It was more proactive than reactive, I think, and that's something regards to healthcare that I generally believe in as well. So I respect that she had figured out like, nope, if we do this, this will actually make a really big difference. <laughs> Historians now believe that her help in improving drainage and stuff and like the, the health, public health acts that she helped push through, historians now believe that she played a crucial role in raising the national life expectancy by 20 years between 1871 and the mid-1930s. So the reason for that time period is that during that time period, um, medical science made no impact on the most fatal epidemic diseases of the time. So it was is a clear sample to see how non-medical approaches can clearly impact people's health. And uh, that's like a really huge discovery. <laughs> but probably her most lasting contribution has been her role in the founding of modern of the modern nursing profession, like I mentioned. Uh, she set an example of compassion, commitment to patient care, and diligent and thoughtful hospital administration. So everything she did, in her role as like either logistically collecting stats or actually administering care was done with the idea that the patients come first because that's the point of medicine. <laughs> International Nurses Day has been celebrated on her birthday, May 12th, since 1965 because she was such a pioneer. And the Red Cross instituted the Florence Nightingale Medal in 1912 and is awarded every two years to nurses or nurses' aides for outstanding service and is the highest international distinction a nurse can receive. She died on August 13, 1910, at the age of 90. She is buried in the graveyard at St. Margaret's Church in East Wellow, Hampshire, as her family turned down the offer for her to be buried at Westminster Abbey. But she, uh, yeah, is still a really well-respected figure in the kind of also proof that, yeah, like you were saying, you know, war correspondence made a difference, you know, yeah. someone yes. like, someone like her sees reports that British troops are, or allied troops, because these barracks were not just full of British troops, they were full of Ottoman and French troops were being treated really horribly, and they were dying unnecessarily, and she managed to fix that, and as a result, you know, use that, that experience to also fix the lives of people elsewhere. Which is also a good example, I think, of how, like, as much as war shouldn't happen, and we're anti-war, and we've talked about this before, like, unfortunately, wartime also tends to necessitate, like, a lot of advancement in technology and understanding of how things work. So, yeah. especially in the medical profession, I feel like the medical profession has probably benefited the, I'm not going to say the most, but they've benefited a lot from warfare in that... They've been forced to get better and figure out new things because they have to deal with new and traumatic things. That can all be applied to more basic non-wartime practices. I mean, surgery, right? Surgery improved so much because of wartime. So success rates for things like that really improved. But like for the most part, this war was basically just a calamity of errors that resulted in a lot of people dying. Yeah. One of the people that ended up dying uh, during the siege of Sebastopol was Lord Raglan. He probably deserved that. 
Well, <laughs> maybe, but I like one thing I was reading about him is that he understood his mistakes yeah. and felt guilty for his mistakes, and that caused him severe anxiety and depression. He, similar to the case of Tsar Nicholas, the anxiety and depression worsened his health. He ended up developing dysentery and died yeah. on the front. I think the, the, the charge of the Light Brigade ultimately is probably what really did it because that was the most catastrophic loss. The other mistakes were still problematic and they essentially just extended the war, but I don't think they were like the same level of bad. Yeah. Like they didn't lead to the immediate death of hundreds of people. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, um, absolutely. Nobody wrote a poem about any of his other mistakes. We'll no. put it that way. Uh, which speaking of the poem, I'm actually going to read it because it's pretty short and I don't know if everyone's heard it, but it's powerful and should be read. Um, so I'll try not to fuck this up. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward. All in the Valley of Death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, charge for the guns, he said. Into the Valley of Death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, was there a man dismayed? Not though the soldier knew, someone had blundered. There's not to make reply, there's not to reason why. There's but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon in front of them volleyed and thundered. Stormed out with shot and shell, bully they rode and well. Into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell rode the 600. Flashed all their sabers bare, flashed as they turned in air, sabering the gunners there. Charging an army while all the world wondered. Plundered in the battery smoke, right through the line they broke. Cossack and Russian reeled from the saber stroke, shattered and sundered. Then they rode back, but not the 600. Cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon behind them volleyed and thundered. Stormed out with shot and shell, while horse and hero fell. They that had fought so well came through the jaws of death, back from the mouth of hell, all that was left of them, left of 600. One can their glory fade, oh the wild charge they made, all the world wondered. How the charge they made, honor the light brigade, noble 600. So that was wrote by Alfred, wrote by, written by Alfred Tennyson, who also wrote a poem about the charge of the heavy brigade, uh, which was significantly less traumatic and also a lot less climactic. <laughs> <laughs> they rode kind of slowly up a hill is basically what yeah. happened. And it was, it was a lot more of a success for the heavy brigade. Um, but that poem's really powerful. And I think for most people, and at least like for me anyway, <laughs> It was probably like the most exposure and the most common thing that I would have known about the Crimean War. Because for the most part, the Crimean War, I mean, outside of like military history, I think, is not really that well talked about. I guess maybe more. I don't know. I just feel like it's never come up that much. Yeah, it's... it's I think it's just one of those wars that... It's, it's one of those like mid like ni 19th century, 18th century, 19th. 19th century. I'm really bad at the centuries. Uh, one of the 19th century wars between European powers that just kind of like happened and we were like oh yeah it was one of those ones right like oh, it's just, there was just so many of them right like oh it's another war in europe huh? yeah mm. i think because they were just so much like more isolated events and less catastrophic than the world wars we just are kind of yeah although it was certainly one of the wars that helped lead up towards yes and there was definitely a lot of uh, foreshadowing towards it because something i forgot to talk about i guess <laughs> i don't know um the siege lines around Sevastopol <laughs> were like 
or there was this one one position where the British tried to come around and the Russians dug in in a certain place with these machine gun pits and essentially just sniped sniped the British in Sevastopol. Like they had a really good position. And it became essentially a foreshadow of what trench war- warfare was going to be like for in World War One. So, yeah, the I think all of these wars now between essentially Crimea and when World War One actually happened, and some of the wars around the time of the Crimean War were really a good example of like the shift in warfare of how it's done. Right? You start digging trenches, you start realizing that guns and horses don't really mix very well. <laughs> And also that the traditional methods of communication needed to be improved. So the biggest problem with like one of the storms that wiped out some of the British fleet at the beginning there was that those ships were how the British got instructions from Britain. (laughs) 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 So that's a problem (laughs) when you can't, when you're suddenly your communication line is busted. It's like, oh, well, shit. It was also like the first like, major war where the use of the telegraph was a big thing. That's how, I forgot to mention, that's how Russell got his, or I did mention it, yeah, he used the telegraph machine to send messages back to the Times. He used the military's telegraph machine to send these back. So the Charge of the Light Brigade, the the poem, not the actual event, uh, was actually reported in the Tennyson published it in the Times, and it was published pretty shortly after this happened. During this period in the Crimean War, Tennyson had written several patriotic poems under various pseudonyms, and scholars speculate that Tennyson created his pen names because these verses used a traditional structure Tennyson employed in his earlier career, but had suppressed during the 1840s, and he worried that poems like Charge of the Light Brigade, which he actually only signed as A.T., might not, or might prove to not be decorous for a a poet laureate, so he didn't want to upset his reputation. But it was the poem was written after the casualties, and he wrote the poem based on two articles that were published in the Times. The first was published in November and provided the phrase, someone has blundered, and thus the meter of the poem. The poem was written in a few short minutes on December 2nd, the same year, based on a recollection of that account. And then Tennyson wrote other poems in a very similar manner to that one. But he did actually write Charge of the Heavy Brigade as well, which I actually have never read. <laughs> well, <laughs> but yeah. here we are. The Light Brigade one's obviously a lot more famous because yeah. a lot of people died. Well, so by the time Sebastopol Paul fell, uh, the um, wish to continue the war pretty much every, everywhere had diminished. I mean, it wasn't as huge in France or in the Ottomans, but... In Britain, it had become so severely unpopular. Riots were breaking out. Russia was not, like, knew that they were going to be, they, they weren't doing very well at all. So finally, Russia agreed to a peace conference, and they met at what is known as the Congress of Paris. And it resulted in the Treaty of Paris of 1856. Now, if you look up Treaty of Paris, there is a fuck ton. They met in Paris a lot, as yeah. it turns out. This is this is just one of them. Apparently, Paris is the place for signing treaties. Apparently. So if you need a treaty signed, go to Paris. Go to Paris. Russia restored all Ottoman territory to the Ottomans. The Crimean Peninsula was returned to Russia, and Russia lost its dominance in the Balkans, and they were told to respect Ottoman integrity. Britain became more isolationist in European politics for decades, resulting in continued Russian aggression towards the Ottomans without any intervention. The Eastern question continued until the conclusion of the First World War when the Ottoman Empire ceased to exist. 
And also the war left Russia in quite a significant amount of debt. And it was because of this, Russia was convinced to sell Alaska to the United States in order to eliminate its war debt. So if you're ever wondering why Russia gave up Alaska, the Crimean War is why. Forgot about that. <laughs> Another thing I should mention is it was also the first time that the Victoria Cross, which is Britain's highest military honor, was ever awarded. It was created by Queen Victoria in order to honor bravery conducted in this war, and is still awarded today for bravery. Do you know who won it? I don't. Bet you it's one of those 93 Highlanders. 93rd Highlanders. It could be. But I have no idea. So lot. that's the Crimean War. Um, what did we learn? I learned just now that none of the none of the people in the 93rd Highlands that made up the Thin Red Line got awarded oh, Victoria Cross, which is... That's a bit of a scandal. Definite bullshit. Yeah. Although some from the Light Brigade were awarded. Mm. John Berryman of the 17th Lancers. Uh, the 11th Hussars. I definitely learned that competence is an important uh -huh. thing for battle. Yeah, it turns out if you're going to have a war, maybe send your qualified people. Yeah, to lead. Yeah. <laughs> Other people die if that doesn't yeah, happen. I mean, Jesus Christ. This was just a gong show. It's like... Like, looking, doing the, studying this war and also now talking about it brought me, brought uh, back memories of when we did the First Crusade. Yeah, it's just... It's just like... A calamity of errors. Calamity of errors, like a shit ton of incompetent people leading people and, and you're then, just like, there's no way they should have <laughs> survived. And honestly, like, there's no way the British should have won. Yeah. Like, honestly, like, the number of times they fucked up like, should have cost them that war. I think they just got lucky because the Russians didn't... They were weak, really. They got lucky because, yeah, the Russians were weak and the French were also... It's more competent than more com Obviously more competent. Like, they sent their more competent people there. That's, yep. That, French commanders definitely, like, carried their weight. They pulled their weight. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So, I mean... I mean, I don't want to laugh because, I mean, it was a, a, a horrible... All wars are horrible, but it's just, like... At this point, like, damn, Britain. <laughs> tragedy, or again, comedy, comedy equals tragedy plus time. It's, it's just complete comedy of errors. And I think when you, even just like juxtaposing this war against like the British Empire, you know, the sun never sets on Britain. And at the time, they're colonizing Ireland, or Ireland, they're colonizing India. And like, I'm really struggling today. <laughs> they're colonizing India, and they're this big, you know, they're the British Empire. They're great under Victoria, right? Victoria. The Victorian era is like the most prosperous and essentially successful era of British history that people think about, right? It's the most glorious. And uh, it's definitely the most romanticized. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like the most glorified, too. Absolutely. Um, and then you look at this and you're like, man, how have they done this? Because, boy, they're not on it. Like, they are not on top of it. Kind of makes sense why maybe a lot of people don't like talking about this war. Yep. Kind of our, we won, but we got our ass. We won, but didn't deserve to win, basically. basically yeah. We won because the Russians just didn't have the people to beat us. And yeah. the French saved our asses. And that's another reason they probably don't want to talk about it. They probably don't want to admit that the French saved them. Yeah. Well, it's funny, like, that how many other European powers didn't participate. Yeah. Because... They're like, meh. Well, I mean, Prussia was more concerned about unifying the Germany. German... Yeah. Uh, like, Germany at the time. Uh, 
Austria just didn't want to get... I don't think they cared. <laughs> no, they cared. Yeah. They just don't want to commit their troops. Yeah. I mean, their military was pretty shitty, too, in that sense. Like, it was well-trained, but it was small. And so it's it was like, small, yeah. Unless you can really... Essentially, they knew they were probably going to run into an issue that the Russians eventually ended up in, which is like, we can't... Yeah, we can't support you. Yeah, and also, Austria-Hungary found that out the hard way in World War One. Yep. So, uh, they were smart when it came to the Korean War. Yeah, they. I, I know Austria was also having internal struggles as well, especially yeah. with their monarchy, which led to them... The Austro-Hungarian Empire was starting to really come apart at this yeah. point. Well, the Austrian Empire Austrian was. Empire, yeah. That's why they de declared... Uh, that's why they made the dual monarchy with Hungary, which yeah. led to Austria-Hungary. Which also started coming apart. Exactly. <laughs> Pretty um, shortly after yeah. this. It didn't last long. It wasn't good for very long. But, uh, as Eddie Izzard said, the Austria-Hungarian Empire is famous for fuck all. Yeah. All they did was slowly collapse. Basically. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's and the Ottoman much... Empire are, are famous for... It's full of furniture for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Eddie Izzard. What a guy. But, uh, yeah, so this was the beginning of the final demise of the Ottomans. Basically the Russian Empire as well. It's kind of the final demise of a lot of the big empires. Like, this wasn't the, fu this wasn't the final demise of, rather, of the Russian Empire. The biggest final demise was actually the, the Russo-Japanese War in the East. That really was a big fuck-up by Nicholas II. But this was, um, this but this was the beginning. This, this, was a yeah. definite, this was definitely showing a crack now. And the Russian Empire, that like, oh shit. <laughs> well, one of the things we just that, got smacked. One of the things that they realized during this time is that Russia needed to modernize. Like yeah. the Russians realized they needed to modernize, and they tried. <laughs> it took until a Bolshevik re revolution for them to actually begin to modernize, well, and industrialize. They, yeah, they like started... properly. I mean, yeah, they started to try. I mean, under Alexander III, I guess, after the Crimean War, obviously, because Alexander II is now czar. And then now, after, during Alexander III's term and his son, Nicholas II, who, by all accounts, really wasn't a good leader, they built one of the biggest things that happened, I think one of the biggest, like, results that is related but also doesn't seem related is actually the Trans-Siberian Railway. Oh, yeah. Because the Trans-Siberian Railway began construction after the Crimean War, like, in 1891, so significant, not, sig 20 years isn't that much, like, or however many, yeah, 20 years, it's not that bad, it was well, not that, that, that much time, so that was a pretty direct result, which is impressive, because the Trans-Siberian Railway is incredible, <laughs> like, <laughs> it's incredible, there, it's a, it's incredible, there's no other way to really put it, it actually finished construction in 1916. There we go. So... Crimean War led to the longest railway line in the world. Yeah. There you go. Boom. It led to a lot of important changes and, like, showed a lot of advantages to, like, certain technologies and expansion of technology and also not to fuck up. Yeah. But uh, that's the Crimean War. So yeah. we're going to... Did you... What, what was your good news you learned this oh, week? Oh, yeah. So this is the new segment we're doing that I totally forgot, even though it was my idea. Um, so my good news for the week, as I just saw this morning as of today, March 6th, that the first all-female spacewalk is uh, scheduled for March 29th, and it will be, they'll be supported by a controller from the Canadian Space Agency. Oh, cool. Uh, and she's actually the one who broke the news on Twitter this morning, so she'll be the support for the two astronauts. Um, oh, God, I had their names in there. I can't remember them. Are they Canadian? No, they're NASA astronauts. Okay. I think that... 
NASA probably keeps that pretty close to the, like the actual spacewalks right. close to the, close to home. <laughs> but there we go. NASA astronauts Anne McLean and Christina Koch will carry out the spacewalk on March 29th. And they will be supported by Canadian Space Agency flight controller Kristen Fekiel, who will be on the console at the Johnson Space Center in Houston. So, yeah, that's my good news for the week. There was also other good news I had, but it was a lot more complicated and less good in some way. So, okay, still good, but my good news is that uh, as of today, a third patient is now reportedly cured of HIV. I was that's the other news I was going to report. So there's a 12 year. I'm just reading this. This is off of Futurism. There, quote, there is a 12-year gap between the announcement of the first and second patients reportedly cured of their infections, but now, just two days after doctor claimed that the second patient was HIV-free, another team is saying they've cleared the infection in a third patient, and there's a chance a fourth and fifth might be coming very soon behind. So, like, what? the only reason I that wasn't my news is because I had read I was reading or I'd read an interview or heard an interview I don't really know now the last few days have been kind of a blur from one of the patients that had been cured and part of the reason that he'd been cured is because of the cancer that he had right it allowed them to be able to like it allowed this treatment to work so like it's amazing and really exciting because this would be like this is the first biggest development really since the pandemic started but the problem is is that it's also not really like it's closer but it's still not really a direct step towards like an actual cure to HIV because the health situation of these people allowed this treatment to work and it's a really bad health situation to be in in the first place. Right, but now that this third patient has been announced Yeah, today, I don't know that, anything that about that. Today, yeah, apparently. I haven't seen that yet, so I don't know anything about that, but yeah. I just, that yeah. was, I think, that was the only like news that I was like, I was. it's obviously still great. I was just like conflicted because I was like, this is awesome, but, but there's also this like, but. <laughs> yeah, to me, it's a good step. It's still a great step. It's still definitely a yeah. great step and if we can be able to cure HIV, that would be incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where it's still, like, the greatest advancement since, you know, on that Probably front. the invention of, like, well, on the that, polio vaccine. At or, least on that front, at least yeah. concerning HIV, HIV um, and AIDS pan- epidemic, pandemic? It would be a pandemic, pandemic I would yeah. definitely say. I always confuse those terms. Um, it's like knowing when to use the right effect. <laughs> yeah, well, having <laughs> watched... Lindsay and I have been watching the CNN documentaries, uh, the 70s. We're going to... Which, if you followed us on Instagram, you would know. Yeah, we're probably going to be starting the 80s next time we chill. Yeah, so we're probably going to be starting the 80s, and one of the episodes is completely on the AIDS epidemic. And it is probably one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful episode of that, of these, of like these entire series of documentaries. Yeah, it was incredible. There was also a a really awesome documentary on Netflix that I can't remember the name of now that was about that. And um, And you're blanking now? Yeah. Well, if you like documentaries and you love learning about different decades, and if you're like How to Survive a Plague. How to Survive a Plague. Great documentary about the AIDS pandemic. Check out How to Survive a Plague on Netflix. Netflix, give us free stuff. Um, I don't even know if it's still on Netflix, but it was on Netflix. Uh, Anyway, uh... Yeah, if you're into that kind of stuff, you should definitely check those uh, those shows out. They're on Crave, yeah. so if you want to watch them, they're on Crave. PBS Frontline also has some good stuff on AIDS, um, which is for free on YouTube and their website, actually. So we can post some links if anyone's curious. But Well, 
yeah. yeah, that's a good stop. We'll probably do that when we actually talk more about the AIDS pandemic, since we're going to. <laughs> it yeah, doesn't eventually. really relate to today's episode yeah. that much, but... Eventually we will. Um, yeah. But this is our point to kind of, you know, unwind. <laughs> yeah, and definitely uh, we're trying out this new segment of what good news we learned this week. And if we if you like it, we'd like to hear your feedback. And also, if you have good news this week, post it on our social. Yeah, please let us know. Yeah. We would love to share it, and we'd love that you share it with us. Yeah, and as always, please like, rate, subscribe, review, Please, et yeah, please. All of the pandering. I hate doing. We should really just pre-record this part and stick it in. Probably, yeah. But oh well, we'll keep doing it this way. It's more fun. So, that, welcome. Thank you all for joining us in. This is the first episode of season two, and we're pretty pumped. We're so pumped. I'm excited. We made it this far. Yeah. So, uh, next episode, which will be released in a couple weeks, is a biography on the governor of Louisiana, Huey Long. So we're definitely pivoting. Yeah. <laughs> definitely a different topic very different it's gonna be like that all season though actually like i was just looking at before we recorded we were talking about when we're gonna try and have episodes released just to make sure we had the dates secure and like it's some pretty varied topics yeah i mean it's like talk about yeah i mean we go from in the same month like we talk about very different topics you know the moon landing and confederation and you talk you know just like you know, we talk about the same... <laughs> talk about some wild stuff in the same month sometimes. Sometimes they're related, and you'll notice maybe a theme, like in June, for instance. No. Um, in May, sorry. There's more of a relation between the two. But uh, for the most part, it's been really uh, pretty crazy, which is fun. And we're kind of hoping to keep it that way. And we hope you like that, because we like it, because it helps it vary what's going on. <laughs> yeah, that was the big thing about last season is... We, we definitely needed to vary it out of it, like yeah. we said. Before. Which I definitely think we realized was just a flaw and not planning enough, which we didn't really do. And that's pretty okay. Pretty much. Because uh, the first season we just flew by the seat of our pants and hoped for the best, and it went pretty well. So, yeah. so and this is going to be even better. We hope you yeah. are enjoying it. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you still haven't listened to season one, it's available online. So, check out Podbean on iTunes and on Spotify. And wherever else you get your podcasts, because they're probably else. Yeah, too. pretty much. So. Anyway, that's all we have left. Uh, there's nothing much going on. We'll give you some more updates after the Huey Long episode. We hope to see you there. Oh, we started a blog this week. We did? Yeah. You want to talk about that? Yeah. Uh-huh. I remember that. We should probably put this at the top of the episode. Oh, well. Um, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, so I guess for those of us, for those of you listening who know me and Jonah personally, we've something I've wanted to do in particular, but Jonah's been really well, excited about it as well. And we wanted to do was start a blog to go with the uh podcast because obviously history is a you know large (laughs) and diverse (laughs) topic um we uh can't cover it all shocking i know but we can't we're only human so we decided to start a blog and the idea behind the blog was that it would allow us and also some of our awesome cool smart friends to write about the different things that we're interested in and give you guys more content without having to record more. It's just a different format. The, for the first little bit, it'll just be me and Jonah. But the plan is to get our cool, smart, awesome friends who largely are uh, in, in a variety of different fields. Um, I have We have some friends in indigenous studies, shout out Crystal, uh, biblical studies, shout out Charlotte, um, <laughs> and as well as different areas of history. Uh, we have some some Russianists, some British history 
fiends, some American history people, tons of different people. It'll be really fun to get them involved. And uh, the posts will be accessible. I mean, they're going to be written by academics on ap- academic topics. But the nice thing about a blog is it's a really awesome way to convey that information because it's not written in boring jargon. So I'm really excited about it. And the link is on our our uh, social media, but it's just panhistoria panhistoriapodcast.wordpress.com. So go check it out. Uh, right now there's just a little welcome post up there, but I mean, as of today, I guess there's only a welcome post, but by the time you hear this, there will be something on the blog for uh, International Women's Day that I'm working on. So check that out too. Yeah, Lin- Lindsay put the whole thing together. So also yeah. I hope you like the new logo she made. Yeah, I guess I forgot that we have a new logo now, too. Well, yeah. Sort of newish. (laughs) The cover photo logo is going to remain the same. But we have the new smaller logo. Uh, Thank. I I should also mention, thank you, everyone, for the birthday wishes. Uh, Thank you, Lindsay, for posting that. Uh, Lindsay's birthday is coming up, so we're going to be doing the same thing for her. Yeah. If you all (laughs) want to celebrate my birthday, it's St. Patrick's Day, so please go have a beer in my name. Please do. Or yeah, if you awesome. don't drink, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I think that's it. We're, we'll be back with Huey Long in a couple weeks. Stay tuned for that. Yep. And so this is Jonah. And Lindsay. Thank you guys so much. Have a good day.